0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, I am the host of the program, which, as promised, continues here on the Internet. And, of course, on KZFR Chico 90.1 on your FM dial. I'm going to start off by answering a query from Bruce, and a few others, about what we recommend doing as regards the KDVS pledge drive, which will be starting next week. We have had a long and happy relationship with KDVS, but at this point in time, we are going our separate ways. As such, my advice to you would be that if you listen to KDVS on a regular basis, well damn it, you should support it. But if you have made donations in the past to support this program in particular, then we need to find some other means to continue our relationship. We are investigating how to best do that with a podcast, and we should have an answer by next week, certainly by the time that uh, the Thursday 5 o'clock slot arrives on the calendar. Now, I do have to confess to having a slight uh, disagreement with our uh, former flagship station. The need for funding is acute. In fact, more acute than ever, given that there was a cut in the dollars being sent kdvs's way courtesy of the asucd the associated students of the university of california at davis now we had a wonderful chat on this very program many months back with kzfr's manager rick anderson and he explained how it was that that station is able to get very very healthy support via sponsorships from the community as well as obtaining a significant support via grants Oh, and they also hold pledge drives, which do about as well as KDVSs, despite the fact that they have a much smaller footprint and reach a much smaller metropolitan area. We tried valiantly to convince the station to adopt some of the methods being used up in Chico, but it turns out in the end, our pleadings fell on deaf ears. The station intends to do things the way they've always done things, which itself might be okay, except they don't do things as well now as they used to. Although a pledge drive was held last fall, this show only raised $300, about a third or less of what we normally do during pledge drive programs. We know for a fact that at least one person tried to call in on nine straight occasions during that hour of broadcasting and was unable to reach an operator. It seems they neglected to bring three operators on board as had been normal standard operating procedures in the past. When this and other deficiencies were brought to the attention of the core staff. Yours truly was informed that these issues were not really considered a problem. So as such, I would say during that 5 o'clock hour, next week, at Thursday, don't make a pledge on our account. We think a bit of cold water being tossed on some of the decision makers might actually be a good thing. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Let's instead jump into starting the program as we like to do every week with on this date in history. Our date is April 14th and in American history without a doubt the most significant thing that took place in this day was the terrible assassination of our 16th president Abraham Lincoln. The bloody civil war had just come to an end. Lincoln had recently visited the captured rebel capital of Richmond, Virginia and was seeking a way to reunite the country. His murder by John Wilkes Booth, it's fair to say, I think, screwed up that process and I think to this day left this country more divided than it should be. If you check out our present red state, blue state divide, you will note that uh, the Confederacy now comprises the red states, along with some of the land that was territories back in that era, whereas what used to be the Union is largely blue these days. That's pretty weird. But there were some other things that took place on this day. It was on April 14th in the year 1198 that Hyacinth Bobo, an elderly cardinal deacon, was consecrated as Pope Celestine III just one day after his ordination as a priest. Talk about being on the fast track to advancement. And although I realize this is a ridiculously trivial item of world history, I just couldn't resist talking about somebody named Hyacinth Bobo, a name which, to my knowledge, has never resurfaced. And it was on the night of April 14th in 1912 that the Titanic found itself sailing through a field of icebergs. The crew of the ship did not worry enough to slow down. As you're probably aware, that led to some problems. Although on the plus side, the event did later lead to an Academy Award for Best Picture. And on April 14th in 1956, the first videotape recorder was demonstrated by its trio of American inventors. The device, the size of a freezer, sold for $75,000. Our quote of the day comes from that great American, Benjamin Franklin, who once said, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. Our quote of the day comes from Senator Lindsey Graham, who has now stated that Ted Cruz is the best alternative to Donald Trump, which is odd because the quip we're going to use is the remark he made some months back, which was that Ted Cruz could be murdered on the floor of the Senate without repercussions. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Seth Myers, who noted that a new poll has found that Bernie Sanders is the most likable of all the presidential candidates, which Myers notes... Let's face it, it's kind of like being the best-dressed person at Walmart. Our stat of the day is 4,335 movies and 1,195 shows. That is what Netflix is currently making available to the public. Two years ago, the streaming giant offered... 6,400 movies and 1,600 TV shows. Yes, Netflix's catalog is shrinking as the company focuses on more of its own original programming, screwing the public. Seems like only a couple decades ago that these giant chains renting videos turned up all over the country, putting all the mom-and-pop stores out of business, and then after eliminating the competition, disposing of their classic movie section. It's a different decade, but we're getting screwed again. All right, for a good news item of the week, I think I'm going to pick the fact that, although it didn't happen this week, a couple weeks back, Barack Obama visited Cuba. This marked the first visit by an American president since Calvin Coolidge, and has hopefully opened up a new era of cooperation between the two countries. Let's face it, the embargo put in place by John F. Kennedy did not take Fidel Castro out of power. And in fact, speaking of Fidel, (laughs) in the wake of Obama's visit, he apparently wrote a nasty letter to the editor, to Grandma, the state organ of the Communist Party in Cuba. In a long, bristling letter, he recounted the history of U.S. aggression against Cuba and wrote that we don't need the empire to give us any presents. Hopefully, Fidel's rant will do nothing to slow the momentum toward the normalization of relations. And in a good news bonus item, we would note that Ecuador has designated an area the size of Vermont and New Hampshire in the ocean as a sanctuary for sharks. 18,000 square miles of water around the Galapagos will now be off limits to fishing vessels and patrols will search for illegal shark fin hunters. Ecuador's President Rafael Correa said this area hosts the largest biomass of sharks in the world, which is an indicator of the pristine conditions of the site, as well as the importance of conservation. Bravo to Ecuador. And for our anecdote of the week, we have the item about a cephalopod imitating the Shawshank Redemption. And if somebody had told me 20 years ago I would once utter the phrase, a cephalopod imitating the Shawshank Redemption, I wouldn't have thought that was possible. But here's the deal. Inky, an octopus at New Zealand's National Aquarium, made a break for it a few weeks back. He evidently slipped through a gap left by maintenance workers at the top of his enclosure and, as evidenced by the tracks he left, made his way across the floor to a six-inch-wide drain. He then squeezed his football-sized body through the drain, octopuses are very malleable, and made his way back to the Pacific. Apparently, the aquarium's manager, Rob Yarrell, told the New Zealand website Stuff, he managed to make his way to one of the drain holes that got back to the ocean. And he didn't even leave us a message. Inky had resided at the aquarium since 2014 when he was taken in after being caught in a crawfish pot. His body was scarred and his arms were injured. The octopus's name, in case you're curious, was chosen from nominations submitted to a contest run by the Napier New Zealand City Council. Karen Hewitt, the aquarium's curator of exhibits, said at the time that Inky was getting used to being at the aquarium, but the staff would have to keep Inky amused or he would get bored. Well, it seems pretty clear that happened. All right, as anecdote number two, playing off the fact that, you know, Inky wasn't the worst name they could have come up with for an octopus after asking the public to derive one. But on the other hand, things didn't work out so well when they tried this over in the UK. Evidently, Britain's Natural Environment Research Council asked the public to suggest an inspirational name for its $285 million polar research vessel. Perhaps one related to its icy mission, they suggested. Voters online immediately proposed names like It's Bloody Cold Here and Ice Ice Baby. (laughs) But these wound up being eclipsed by the runaway favorite and eventual winner, which was Bodie McBoatface. For its part, the research council said it was pleased that people are embracing the idea in a spirit of fun, but have now added that the results of that naming contest were not, in fact, binding. James Hand, the former BBC radio host who first proposed the moniker, has subsequently apologized for the joke. And you have to admit, that that would have to be pretty rough on the crew when you pull into, like, Rotterdam. They have to fill out some log, including name of vessel. Yeah, Bodie McBoatface. All right, without further ado, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, it was a good week last week for a political correctness run amok with this story. Officials at San Francisco State University are investigating a videotaped confrontation between an African-American woman who grabbed a white student with dreadlocks and accused him of cultural appropriation. Corey Goldstein is seen on tape asking the woman, you're saying I can't have a hairstyle because of your culture? Why? The woman blocks his path and responds, because it's my culture. Goldstein later said, she kept grabbing me. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for American knowledge of geography, with the news that Walmart had to pull off its shelves thousands of University of Maryland-themed T-shirts because they mistakenly depicted Massachusetts. Well, they both start with an M. And it was an ugly week last week for a broadly-based education, with the news that a Pennsylvania lawmaker has proposed eliminating grants for students who study poetry or as he described it, some other pre-Walmart major. Yes, apparently Republican Representative Brad Roe is pushing spending cuts that one critic called a medieval crusade against the arts, culture, and learning. For his part, Roe says education and arts grants are wasteful. People elected us to cut spending, not raise taxes. We're also happy to report there is some good news coming out of Syria in that Palmyra was recaptured from ISIS. Although irreparable harm was done to the World Heritage Site, it does appear that the area is now back in the hands of civilized people. This correspondent is pleased to have been able to visit the site before ISIS got there and applied the dynamite. I hope that parts can rebuild. I do hope that parts may be rebuilt. In some future program, we're going to talk more about how ISIS came to be. But uh, I think it's fair to say, in short, it exists because of A. George Bush's Iraq War, and B, the misguided efforts under Obama to destabilize, quote-unquote, the Assad regime. You may have noticed the headlines a couple weeks back noting that in terms of the supposed moderate anti-Assad factions in Syria, the CAA was arming one group while the Pentagon was arming another. Your tax dollars at work. This may be a good point to interject this bizarre little news item. Dateline United Nations. Technology allowing a robot to shoot or kill or a tank to fire at a target with no human involvement is only years away, experts say. A new report called Monday for a ban on such killer robots. The report by Human Rights Watch and the Harvard Law School International Human Rights Clinic calls for humans to remain in control over all weapon systems to ensure that fighters comply with international law. Well, that seems kind of sensible, doesn't it? Personally, I'm not sure people are so worried about. I've never seen a computer program fail. And yes, I realize that airplanes do fly on computers. In fact, most international flights probably were done by a computer. But in fact, they're done by four computers. And nowhere along the way do any of those computers have to decide friend, foe, or neutral. All right, I wanna to respond to a couple items here that are critical of doctors. Sometimes on this program, we've been critical of doctors. Sometimes doctors damn well deserve to be criticized. However, this notion that there's some opioid painkiller epidemic in the United States that's killing people right and left, well, let's just say we are skeptical. To quote from New Scientist, in 2014, the overdose death rate among white Americans 25 to 34 was five times higher than the equivalent figure in 1999 and what I would editorialize as a trend I hope is not duplicated elsewhere, the magazine notes that New York State is hoping to reduce opioid abuse by using software to curb prescription misuse. From March 27th, all prescriptions for a medicine in New York will be sent by doctors via the Internet to a person's pharmacy of choice. Because doctors will no longer give people handwritten paper prescriptions, it's argued this should limit the chances for fraud and theft or by altering the name on a prescription or the amount of medicine prescribed. The magazine notes, however, it's not clear how often such prescription fraud happens. The magazine also notes that once a person has their electronic prescription filled, they can still pass or sell the drugs to others who do not have a prescription. But in the showstopper part of the article for me, it notes that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which has now been renamed the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because some knucklehead didn't realize that control also implied prevention, is taking another approach, urging doctors not to prescribe opioids for chronic pain. The organization released a new set of guidelines for doctors last week, which also recommended that people who receive long-term opioid treatment be weaned off in tapering doses. This, ladies and gentlemen, is idiocy of the highest order. To this day, opioids are still the standard for control of major pain, which is why after they take your gallbladder out, they're probably not going to give you a Tylenol. Well, let's hope they don't, because it won't be adequate to control your pain. This seems to be an example of the DAA and others of that ilk sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. There was a great revelation in this country a decade and a half ago that we were massively under-treating pain. If some people's pain requires them to become actually addicted to opioids. That is probably, in most instances, the lesser of evils. Case in point, my dad. He had prostate cancer and late in life, as the disease progressed, he sustained a great deal of pain. A portable morphine pump was placed, which regularly delivered small doses of morphine, which he could then supplement when the pain got worse. This was a complete game changer in quality of life. The CDC can recommend all day long that people receiving long-term opioid treatments should be weaned off from tapering doses, but in some cases, that's just simply not possible. They're making a big stink right now about a bunch of people that bought street drugs that were laced with fentanyl who got very deathly ill in the greater Sacramento area, although the reporting on that did not directly imply that doctors were somehow to blame. It was all part of the same hair-on-fire sky is falling reportage that indicates we've got to do something about this mass opioid epidemic. Well, yes and no. I think what this shows more than anything else is the DEA and other participants in the war on drugs, complete inability to get anywhere, as has been demonstrated by their efforts since the Nixon era, which have obviously been ineffective. And uh, in another item, which I would pull out of New Scientists, it notes that doctors are failing their patients, at least their transgender patients. The magazine notes that in the UK, an estimated one in five general practitioners are refusing trans people treatments such as hormone therapy. This is according to James Barrett of the British Association of Gender Identity Specialists. The headline in the story is, doctors must get up to speed on trans issues. So wait a minute. Bruce Jenner comes to you and says, you know, I've really been a woman all along. Doctor, would you please give me some hormonal injections so I can develop breasts and look more feminine? I'm planning to keep my penis and scrotum, but I would appreciate it if you could help me out on the rest of this. Now, if you as a doctor say, you know, in my professional judgment, I think I'm just not going to get involved. You're a jerk. Meanwhile, over in North Carolina, when the state legislature, admittedly conservative and right wing, came forward to say, you know, we're going to see what we can do to overturn those local ordinances that say men get to use the ladies' room. Well, or more correctly, people who identify as transgender who would still qualify as male in the urology department. Well, these folks just, (laughs) if they want to use the ladies' room, they should be allowed to do so, in spite of the fact that an awful lot of the ladies out there are not keen on this idea. Let let me quote here from something that Larry Thornberry said in spectator.org, something we don't normally quote. But Mr. Thornbury noted, we think reasonably, apparently keeping men out of the women's loo is now considered discriminatory. Virtuous progressives would rather cater to the rare man who thinks he's a woman than the countless women who would rather not have to share their bathrooms, locker rooms, and showers with a person who has a penis, testicles, and a five o'clock shadow. Those of us with wives and daughters are also justifiably alarmed by that prospect. But for the cultural left, only the rights of carefully selected categories of people seem to matter. Anyway, I know in saying this, I'm not going to endear myself to some of you. But uh, I've always had a problem with people who are quite certain about what's right and wrong and who's on which side of those issues. I think we should all be wary of people like that, no matter which side of the political spectrum they come from. Anyway, I got to confess I don't know a lot about this whole topic. But I do know this. If transgender women with penises are using a lot more women's restrooms, then they're going to see a lot of seats being left up. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a break and then come back and talk about some funner stuff.